Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And today we just want to take you through some of the updates that have taken place in the UK to the Advanced Paediatric Life Support course and its recommendations. Now, this is the 2015 update that came out very recently, and you'll see an accompanying blog post for this on the St. Emlyn's site. Simon, it's probably worth us just going over what APLS is, who designs it and where these recommendations have come from. APLS is the Advanced Paediatric Life Support. It's from the Advanced Life Support Group based here in Manchester. It's a fantastic charity which has been putting out uh, life support courses now for many, many years. APLS is one of them. They also do major instinct courses. They also administer ALS courses, MOE courses for obstetric trauma. So a really big organisation which has taught literally thousands of people around the world. But APLS is one of their biggest courses because I guess as emergency physicians, many of us do fear dealing with critically ill and critically injured children. It used to be a three-day course. It's now a two-day course and it covers paediatric cardiac arrest, the seriously ill child and the one that we're talking about today, which is the traumatised child, the child with serious trauma. So APLS is out there. It's a great course. If you haven't been on it, do try and make an effort to go. I've been an instructor in the past. And Simon, you're involved with the uh, ALSG, the group who write these recommendations, aren't you? Did you have anything to do with actually the modifications to this year's recommendations at all? No, I didn't actually. I do direct on the course. I teach on the course. I've actually just revalidated on the course because even if you're an instructor, even if you're a director, you have to go back and have your teaching checked. So I've just done that literally a couple of weeks before these updates came out rather irritatingly. No, I haven't been directly involved, but I know the people who have been doing this and I've got to say they are active paediatric resuscitationists. So this is coming from people who really know their stuff, who are actively involved in doing this. So it's a good group of people. Excellent. Well, let's crack on and get through some of the major alterations and changes to the recommendations. As we say, the most of these are this time to do with trauma. So we're going to go through those with a little bit of explanation, a little bit of thought around it too. So Simon, I think there's three main areas that the APLS team have really concentrated on. That of C-spine stabilisation, haemorrhage control, and then control of fluid resuscitation. We'll take each of those in order. So let's talk first, shall we, about spinal control and the C-spine injury and immobilisation. The big headline one is around the use of cervical collars in children. We've always taught that you should do the ATLS walk. So you walk up to the patient with potential trauma, you put the hands on the side of the head, and you don't move them until you've got a collar and blocks and tape on. And I think if you work in paediatric practice, you do recognise that particularly in small children, the cervical collar is really difficult to fit. It interferes with access to things like the neck and the airway. And there's increasingly evidence that they can be harmful, both in terms of pressure, in terms of raising your intracranial pressure, in terms of pressure on the skin. And I think they've made a very sensible recommendation that they've said that we don't particularly need to do that on everybody. And particularly in young children, it's not a focus of spinal control. So let's just the headline there, because for some people, this is years and years of practice. This is really challenging. So just to reiterate that the routine use of cervical collars is not recommended. What they do seem to recommend is manual inline stabilisation which is a care provider holding the patient's head as still as they can. And it's a useful thing. It's then got a person at the top end of the bed with the patient who's able to reassure them. You can hold their head relatively still. You can even stroke their hair and make them feel as cared for as you possibly can. But that's where they're going rather than with collars. 
Yeah, you're right. And we shouldn't misinterpret this as we don't need to worry about the cervical spine anymore. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that the particularly the use of the cervical collar is not helpful in achieving that. So blocks are still in. You can still use things like a vacuum mattress if you want to put that around the head. But putting the cervical collar on is a bad idea. And just like with adults, spinal boards or whatever you're using to get your patient into hospital from the pre-hospital environment, that is purely for extrication, for transfer. That's not going to do anything to hold that patient's neck still. They need to be on that board for as little time as possible. I've never personally been injured so that I've been lying flat on my back, taped down, but I have had it done to me as a sort of practice thing, and it's no fun at all. So turn that into being five years old and being strapped down onto a hardboard, and you can picture why this is not necessarily something that we want to be doing with all children. So I think what they're saying is think about it, don't feel that collars are mandated. Manual inline stabilisation is a good thing. Use of blocks if you feel it's necessary and get the patient off the board as fast as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're talking about boards there, you're talking about the rigid spinal boards, which we use for extrication. We're still advocating the use of the scoop stretcher. So going from the board onto a scoop, scoops are fantastic, I'm sure you'd agree. And we use the vacuum mattresses a lot in children. They're, They're very effective at cuddling, swaddling children. They like it. Simon, is there anything else that we need to think about before we move on to the next section? Something which I'm really pleased to see, and that's the idea that we get away from the full 90 degree log roll in trauma patients. This is something we've been advocating for a very, very long time, but it's not what's been taught. So if you take a patient who's got a potential spinal injury and you do a log roll, so you take them right the way through 90 degrees, there's really good evidence that you move the spine a lot. And it's just not necessary, particularly with scoop stretchers. There's no reason why if you want to examine the back, you can't just tilt the patient 20 degrees. That's enough to get behind them on one side. Cut the clothes if you need to cut the clothes to examine the back, to listen to the chest. Come round, do it on the other side. So you do 20 degrees one side, 20 degrees the other, rather than a massive log roll. I think this is good. I think it's coming to paediatrics in this recommendation, but it's certainly something we've been advocating in adults for a long period of time. So there we have it, the new recommendations for spinal control for children in the APLS guidelines. You're going to need to have a chat to your colleagues in hospital about this, radiographers, radiologists, perhaps surgical colleagues who are going to look slightly aghast at you when you don't insist on the cervical collar and you don't insist on a log roll. It's about communicating to them and perhaps you can even recommend to them that they download the St Emlyn's podcast, have a look at the blog site and get truly up to date with how to look after the spines of injured children. Simon, the next section we should talk about is that of hemorrhage control. We've obviously had a lot of thought about this in adult practice recently. The London Trauma Conference concentrated on this quite a lot. What have APLS been saying about how we should look after the bleeding traumatised child? Well, I think we are seeing that contamination of the adult guidelines coming down into the children. And I think that's great. So the first thing they're going for is a CABC in catastrophic hemorrhage. So that's manage catastrophic hemorrhage before you go for the airway breathing circulation. And this is something that's really originated out of military medicine for people who may have had blast injuries or stabbings or shootings where they've got catastrophic hemorrhage. And you just have to stop that first direct pressure, use of clotting agents like Selox gauzes and things like that, using indirect pressure such as tourniquets to avoid catastrophic hemorrhage in that very small group of people and a very small group in children who require it. I think that's a good advice. This is helpful for us as emergency physicians. We like things to be straightforward. Adult and paediatric practice can be the same for managing hemorrhage. Go for the CABC approach, manage catastrophic hemorrhage first. 
So further into these, I mean, have they talked anything about the use of TXA, tranexamic acid, for hemorrhage control? Uh, they have, and TXA is now in, so you can adjust the dose. It's 15 milligrams per kilogram as the initial loading dose of TXA. There isn't a great deal of evidence out there for TXA in children. There's some, some small observational studies, both proof-of-concept stuff from the States where they've used it in small numbers of people, and there's some observational data from Afghanistan where they've used tranexamic acid in wounded children out there. And it does seem to do the job. So TXA is in. And I think we should be using the similar criteria as we would for CRASH-2, which is we should be advocating its use in those patients in whom we think are going to have a significant blood transfusion as a result of their injuries. I guess there'd be some colleagues who very much look for evidence for everything that we practice in medicine. And evidence-based medicine, we're fans at St. Emlyn's. We like to promote evidence-based medicine. But the evidence for TXA, for children specifically, As Ross Fisher said in his talk at the London Trauma Conference, it's going to be hard to have enough patients in a trial to prove whether or not this works in the way that we had for CRASH-2. But I'm certainly a believer in balancing harm and benefit, and it seems to me that the benefit outweighs the harm for this. Okay, so Ian, I've got a question for you. Go for it. How old do you think a red blood cell gets? How old is a red blood cell? Yeah. The truth is, I've just done my statin manned blood transfusion training. So I do actually know that the answer is 120 days or thereabouts. So Excellent. I'm a bit of a swat about that. And I won't ask you about platelets. They're about eight or nine days. Old. I could have answered that too. You could have answered that. And uh, clotting factors like fibrinogen, they've got a half-life of about you know five or six days. So And that's at all ages. So one could argue that in terms of coagulation, we're all less than three months old. Even if you're 75, your blood products that are going to be doing the clotting are less than three months old. So why shouldn't TXA work in children as it does in adults? That is really twisted logic. Don't tackle me on that one, but I like to think of it in that way. What you're really saying is is that whether you're six months old or 60 years old, the coagulation system is the same. And so really, it should work just as well for the younger patient as it will for the older patient. So we're going for TXA. APLS recommend it too. Get in there. Again, emergency physicians, we're simple people. Do for children, similar to how you do for adults. Just you need a weight-based calculation in order to give it. Our third and final section for this update is the approach to fluids. I know APLS in the past were very much a bit like ATLS. Give a big bolus of crystalloid and see if you have a response. And if nothing good happens, then think about blood. Now, in adults, certainly where I work and throughout the UK, we've moved to giving blood as our first resuscitative fluid. Is that what they're thinking about for children? Well, it's not quite there. I think we've still got the same principles that we're going to take in to children from adults. So what principles are those? We can mess up the coagulation cascade if we give large volumes of crystalloid. And on the previous incarnation of APLS, you may remember that the advice was to give up to 20 mils per kilo of probably normal saline, I think was largely recommended, before you would consider giving blood. And I think our experience in adults suggests that that's not a good idea. So If you think somebody's actively bleeding, then using the same approach as you would in adults, using a major hemorrhage approach, so using blood, platelets, FFP in a one-to-one-to-one ratio with TXA is the way forward. There is a bit of debate, so they've not completely gone over that to every patient. And there is still a suggestion that you would give a first fluid bolus of up to 10 mils per kilo in some patients, unless you thought they had catastrophic hemorrhage. It's not quite the same as in adults but it's certainly moving in that direction. And I think the other principle uh, is that 
you know, that first clot that you form is probably the best clot that you're going to get. So really aggressive management of things like blood pressure is not a good idea. That's uh, moving away from the previous incarnation of APLS. And also strategies that would preserve that first clot. Use of things like pelvic binders are now in. The use of splints are now in. And I think we'll see the course changing in the skill station such that people will have to be taught those. Because I don't think, I don't know what your experience is, I don't think that many people are that skilled at putting on femoral splints, pelvic binders in children. I think that's right. Again, it's down to you don't see it all that often. And the things that we do rarely, we have to practice more. So those things in the recess room that you may see once a year, twice a year, you need to know exactly where those things are. It can't be a surprise to you when that unexpected event happens. So pelvic binders. My rule is if I'm a trauma team leader, I need to be able to do or at least instruct how to do everything I'm asking my team to do because they're looking to me for leadership. So if you're out there as a trauma team leader, make sure you're fully acquainted with the recess room. You should be able to answer every question that's given to you by your team and to also guide them with any of the procedures that you're asking them to do. I think you're right. And if you don't know the answer, you would have to know exactly where to go and quickly. They do talk about that a little bit. I think early involvement of paediatric surgeons who are understand and have got experience in the management of paediatric trauma is important. And I think you're, you're right. Ross Fisher did say at the London Trauma Conference that the exposure to really significantly severely injured children is actually rare, even if you are a major trauma centre for children. Getting advice from people who've seen this before is important at an early stage. And I don't think we should be doing large volumes of crystalloid before we phone the paediatric surgeons. I think getting them involved at an early stage, getting paediatric anaesthetists involved at an early stage is good practice. And that's with all medicine, a collaborative approach to these patients working together, asking each other the questions you need to ask with some defined leadership is the way that we're going to get the best outcomes. Simon, I think that takes us through the three things we're going to talk about. So spinal control, we've mentioned, manual inline stabilisation, collars are no longer mandated, get rid of the log roll, just 20 degrees is fine. Straightforward. Hemorrhage control, you can use some of those ideas that we're using in adults. Think about controlling of hemorrhage first and then stabilisation. That's how we're going to approach stopping the bleeding in those patients. And then when it comes to needing to give them resuscitative fluids, just like in adults, blood and blood products can be our first fluid if necessary. I really like the fact that we're going to see a coming together of the principles which we're now applying to the management of severe injury in adults to children. I must also say, though, that some of the courses that are currently available for adults are now clearly lagging behind where APLS is for children. It's really good that a UK course, a great course, a really interactive and engaging course is taking this forward. And I th I'm, I'm proud to be a director and instructor on this. For many people guidelines become the way that they feel they're comfortable in practicing and so you need to get yourself equated to this you need in your hospital to make sure that people are happy we all need as they say to be singing from the same hymn sheet so have another read have a look at the blog post and good luck with managing pediatric trauma it's possibly one of the most stressful things that we can be involved in and if you have the knowledge behind you it will make you all the better looking after these children when they really need you well, that's it from the St. Eminence podcast for this episode. We'll be back soon with more emergency medicine topics. We hope you've enjoyed this, found it useful. Please go to the blog post to have a read of that. That summarises all of this and has links to all of the documents you could need to learn more about this. Subscribe to the podcast. We'll be out with more great stuff in the very near future. And most of all, take care and enjoy your emergency medicine, everyone.